You're listening to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is Malcolm X. We first go over the average white context of who Malcolm X is and what he's done. We go over where he's from, how he got his name, and then go over some of the stories throughout his life that have helped shape who he was. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, Garen, before you set up the time and just the early stages of Malcolm's life, I wanted to give a kind of generic view in my head of what I've been told of Malcolm X. And I'm going to assume that a lot of our listeners are probably going to think the same thing. So I don't know very much. I know that something about black power that he was he was behind. I know he had something to do with Islam. I know that he was like a meaner version of Martin Luther King Jr. I know that just like kind of generically speaking, he was dangerous and not safe. And then maybe the government killed him, but like, I don't, you know, that's all I really know. So I don't, I, I would. Well, that's what you think. Well, that's what I you think. Know. I know, exactly. <laughs> so I'm sure all that is going to change in like less than 30 minutes. But why don't you start us off? What, give us the, the beginnings of Malcolm X's life. Yeah. Malcolm was born in 1925 and he was assassinated in 65 at like the age of 40. Um, so yeah, during that time, I mean, that was Jim Crow South. That was, uh, like the mass migration, uh, urban kind of slums in the North, uh, redlining. Um, and yeah, so he, his family history, like his looking a little bit of his, at his parents, his five out of six of his father and his father's brothers were killed by white people. Uh, I think three of those through uh, kind of overtly like mob-like lynching-like situations and others just uh, in other situations. Five out of six were killed by white people. His father was killed by the Black Legion, which was kind of like mm. KKK, um, you know, type group. Um, and this is kind of crazy. His father, his father was killed when Malcolm was young, and his father had two insurance policies, two life insurance policies. And one of those two life insurance policies refused to pay out at his father's death because they said that his father was had committed suicide, even though his father had been bludgeoned in the head and then dragged, like by the Black Legion, clearly not suicide. And so, like here, his whole life, his this man had been paying this life insurance policy, knowing that like he wanted his family to be taken care of if anything should happen to him, and then this insurance company just refused to pay it out. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, Malcolm's mom then had no support. So she went on welfare and the welfare people, as soon as they started coming around, these white welfare people started coming into the home and just looking for any reason to like take the kids away from Malcolm's mom. Malcolm had, I think, sev- seven siblings um, or there were seven of them. 
And so they um, they were trying. They were like the welfare people would say things to like divide them and drive wedges between them. They would like compare the kids to one another and ask them who was like smartest and um, who did or didn't fit, and um, just trying to like cause division in the family and to look for ways to like split the family up. And ultimately they did. They, they, Malcolm was taken from the family and adopted by um, the Gohannises, another family. And he, uh, he, he remained, like his mom actually had a mental break and went yeah. to a mental hospital. Um, she didn't die there. I think she eventually uh, got out and was taken care of by one of her other kids. But um, Malcolm, during this whole long period, he would go and visit her, but he like couldn't even talk about and ultimately had to stop visiting her because it made him too angry at the system and he was afraid that he was going to like like act out violently. He said at one point um, in his autobiography that he was actually afraid of what he would do if somebody spoke negatively about his mom because of the amount of like love he had for her and the amount of anger at like the way the system just tore her apart. Not paying the insurance policy to take care of her. She she was white passing, so she looked like she could be white. So she would get jobs, like after her husband died, she would take jobs and employment. And then over and over again, people would find out that she was black. Like if they saw her kids with darker skin or if they like somehow would find out that she's black just through like the grapevine. And then they would fire her. So over and over again, she would like lose employment, and um, then like the welfare system working against her, and then uh, ultimately taking her kids away. And she had this mental break. So Malcolm had a super difficult early childhood um, with with all that happening. And then in addition to that, um, he actually somehow he was a brilliant man. So like even despite that, he was like one of the most promising students in his school. He went to a school that was like. Um, mostly white. He was uh, one of one of the only black kids at that point, and he had a a, a white teacher who was um, one of his favorite teachers. And there's this episode. I think he was 16 at this point, where the the teacher asked him, like, "What are you going to do next? Like, what's what's your plan?" And Malcolm said that he wanted to become a lawyer. He didn't like really premeditate that, but he just kind of like, "That sounds like a good thing. I'll become a lawyer." And then the teacher just kind of scoffed at him and said, "Like, you need to be realistic. Uh, like." Um, you know, you're a Negro, you can't become a lawyer. Um, and it, I think he like tried to redirect Malcolm towards something more like, you know, be a carpenter or something um, that would have just like wasted his mind. And Malcolm was like so upset and off put by that and just like torn down by that, that he, that was ultimately part of the reason why he left Chicago and moved to Harlem. Um, and in Harlem, he just kind of uh, fell off the, like he didn't get into education there. He kind of dropped out of school and just kind of like lived a rough life. Um, he lived as like a, a hustler, trying to like just a bunch of different hustles, a bunch of different ways to try to make money. Um, so he tried like a bunch of different things, some kind of legal, some not, um, and just had this like rough phase of life. He did, um, during this time, he learned how to, uh, like swing dance and learned how to, he got a zoot suit and he like learned to just kind of like, uh, you know, dance and had a, a girlfriend named Laura who was like, uh, this sweet black girl. And then there's this other girl, Sophia, this white, 
um, girl that came along and basically kind of as soon as he realized that Sophia was interested in him, he left Laura. Um, he actually like drove her home, dropped her off and went back to dance with Sophia. And Laura was like heartbroken and kind of went, um, her life kind of just like fell off the rails at that point and Malcolm blamed himself for it. So he had like this shame of like, I'm attracted to or want to um, have the recognition and status of Sophia, this white, this beautiful white girl who likes me. Um, but then also kind of just this shame of how he saw like that he like Laura, who's actually like this incredible girl, like he just kind of left her hanging. And um, and then he, in his autobiography, he just kind of mulls over like, why is that? Like, why did I um, prefer this this white girl and want the status that, that came with that? Um, and so, yeah, he was like conflicted. He, he struggled. He, uh, his best friend was a pimp. Uh, he started selling marijuana and making like fifty to sixty dollars a day, which was like a lot in that day in that context. Um, and kind of went through like a number of other hustles. He just he talks in his autobiography about how he saw white people would just come into like the black part of Harlem to just like in, entertain themselves and take advantage of like kind of the coolness of black culture there but always just like with this mentality of like wanting to take from it. Uh, never like actual, no, he never saw, like he never, he says he never saw a single genuine act of a white person just like loving or helping a black person. Um, later on, uh, and we'll get into this later on, but later on he was uh, the Nation of Islam when he like converted um, to the, join the Nation of Islam one of the teachings, uh, so the Nation of Islam isn't just normal um, Muslim teaching, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but one of the teachings is that white people like are devils. And he, it's crazy to think this, he like tried to think through his whole life and think of a single instance that would prove to him that white people aren't devils, and he couldn't come up with one. Mm. And like, how sad is that? That like, he you know, he thought back to the insurance company and like his teachers growing up and the welfare people and like the Sophia and the different like white people coming to Harlem and like mm. like all through his life, he couldn't think of a genuine act of kindness that a white person had ever done without trying to get something back or like feel good about themselves or... Um, and, you know, I don't want to get maybe too deep, but like I would almost want to ask our listeners like our white listeners, like that same question about yourself. Like maybe, can you maybe frame that up so that our listeners can ask themselves, like instead of him thinking about obviously not devils, but like a genuine, I'm, I'm just not even, I'm having a hard time framing up the question. Like, yeah. If you had to prove in a court of law that you had done something, even a, a, a simple act that would demonstrate that you genuinely care about black and brown people and you're not just doing it to feel good about yourself or like done some philanthropic thing but like could you even do that does your actions do your like habits and behaviors and demonstrate love and it says in in the bible like if you see a brother or sister without clothes and daily food and do nothing about their physical needs what good is it it's like 
you can have, it, it says in that same text, uh, if you say, go, I wish you well, be warm and well fed, but do nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? Like, it's not enough to just like speak kindly and say like, go, I wish you well. Um, it's not enough just to like pray. Like, can you show that your life demonstrates That's love? Like, that, the way that you just kind of frame that, like in a court of law, <laughs> trying to like, can you prove that you've had a genuine love for a black or brown person in your life well, that isn't just centering your feel goodness. That is like a, that's a huge kind of, um, and, 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 and I'm not bringing that question up to kind of like shame anybody. I just think it's an actual good question to ask yourself. And, um, well, and I, I think that what white people fail to understand is that Black people, we weren't created to absorb white hatred. And at some point, you're going to get what you have given. And black people historically have had a reason to feel like Malcolm. And I don't, I, 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 it's so crazy to, to think that white people, that, like, where do you think, like, us absorbing racism, it doesn't just disappear, it doesn't go away, it compiles and it mounts up and it passes from generation to ge- generation. And so, and then when you even look at the nation of Islam itself, I mean, I'm a Christian woman and I do not believe um, in the, uh, the ideologies of the nation of Islam, but I do understand that the nation of Islam and many um, black identity groups were created because of white supremacy and the imbalance that it creates because if you're uplifting whiteness, if you're uplifting, you know, um, white is right, then people who are not white are going to, like, we feel, um, like, you know, we, we deal with the ramifications of that, that, you know, that our, that our, the way we look is not the beauty standard, like that, that we don't look good the way we are, that our hair doesn't look good, like all those things. So we have to grapple with those systems that have been elevated. And when you have this imbalance and and the fact that America has created these standards on the foundation of Christianity, I mean, white America would have you think that Jesus is white. You know, Santa Claus has got to be white. He ain't even real, you know, and actually St. Nicholas is from Greece, but whatever. You know, like everything is white. Everything good is white. Jesus is white. I mean, you've even heard news journalists say this crazy stuff that Jesus is white when Jesus is Jewish. But it's crazy that to think that, like, I, 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 it, it blows my mind that white people don't think that Black people are going to feel like, like like we're not going to have some type of feeling about this oppression that we're just su- supposed to absorb it and nothing happens. And so Malcolm, his father was murdered by white supremacy. His parents were activists. His father was a follower of Marcus Garvey. Um, they were doing activism work in the early 1900s, and his father paid that price with his life. Malcolm was six years old. And then to see white people coming in and oppressing his mother and his family and her being institutionalized for 26 years, like his whole entire family was destroyed by white supremacy. So it stands to reason that, of course, he would think that white people would be devils. What else is there for him to think? And it, it kills me that white people are so shocked by that. It's like, oh, how yeah, could you think that? By that? Like, how are you going to be offended 
When this this boy, this child, his whole life, teachers telling him that he could never be anything, like his whole life before he turned, before he even turned 10, had been just completely altered by whiteness and white supremacy. So it's like when you create this imbalance in identity, when you strip the dignity and identity um, of, of other image bearers, then that's what you're going to get. You're going to get identity groups, like people, people who are deprived or, uh, of, of being seen as human and seeing as an image bearer, they're going to create, like the black Hebrew Israelites and some of these other groups, the, the nation of Islam, they're created to fill the void that white supremacy, you know, has created. Mm-hmm. And so it's so funny to watch white people go, oh my gosh, the Nation of Islam and Louis Farrakhan, he's so awful. But there would be no Louis Farrakhan if there were no white supremacy. So my thing is, if you want to be mad about Nation of Islam, if you want to be mad about Malcolm X, if you want to be mad about black Hebrew Israelites and any other black identity group or brown identity group, um, then be mad at white supremacy because white supremacy... Uh, was the m- mother of all, you know, of all of that, you know, the mother in, of invention mm. that created black I- the, the the need for black identity groups. Yeah, I mean, people are trying to make a worldview that makes sense, and if the worldview they're being fed is like, here's this white Jesus and this white Santa Claus, and uh, I live in a country where it's like freedom and justice for all, and then that is like so far from their lived experience. Yeah. Then it's like you're gonna have to add some kind of framework to reconcile those differences and to make it make sense. And Absolutely. so then that created a vacuum that Nation of Islam and like yeah, Black Hebrew Israelites and uh, these different uh, groups came in to fill to say like, okay, they taught into those spaces like. Here's why the world is the way it is. Um, yeah. So Malcolm X. Well, let me. This is like a super tangent. We can cut this, maybe if it if it's too stupid. But <laughs> I, I didn't bring it up in the uh, in the episode with uh, with Harry. But like speaking of teachers, I feel like like white teachers out there. I th- I think you just have so much power in your classroom that I think it's really important for you to ask the questions of like, who are you giving your time to in the classroom? And again, we'll say it, but like we can't assume that teachers are in this bubble of non-implicit bias and that they are just free of that. And so they're just treating every kid. But I just think it's a great question for you to ask as a white teacher. And if you even have a few black students, but like, I just think, you know, if anything, that you need you need to be really intentional about the time with your black and brown students, and that you are not overlooking them because of because you are uncomfortable. Um, but I think you need to push into that and and speak life. And I mean, just even from Malcolm's story, that that's that's crazy. And I and it's not like Malcolm's story is one of just one story. You know, there's so many stories of of that that we probably can't even talk about, but. Yeah, I just want to char- again like love teachers. I think y'all should get more money than you get now. Absolutely. But like I I'm not not ignorant to the point to think that every teacher isn't, you know, racially yeah. biased. So I just want to make sure that you are um realizing the power you have in your classroom and, you know, applying that equally. Yeah, and yeah. just to kind of press into that, like so there's an implicit bias test that Harvard has if you Google Harvard implicit bias test. I would recommend that you guys take this test 
because basically it's a test where um, it just kind of like flashes up words and you categorize them like on the left and right. And it just, it's a test that Harvard has come up with that actually has, is like predictive in the real world, like how people score on the implicit bias test um, is predictive of like how likely um, prosecutors are to like press for different charges for black defendants and how likely teachers are to give detention to black students. So it's like a test that actually has been proven to um, correlate with how uh, people just view others based on their skin color. And I took this test and scored that I have implicit bias. And I think that there's like, for white people, I think a lot of times they like there's kind of this shame of like implicit bias and it's like oh I don't want to like look into this I don't want to know if I have it I just I don't want to be racist I want to just like view people equally but I think that's actually like healthy to like admit and bring into the light that implicit bias that we all have and to and and for that like and let me just build a framework real quick for you guys of the difference between temptation and sin cuz some mm. people they don't distinguish those two, and so that leads to all kinds of funky frameworks. So temptation is not the same thing as sin. The Bible even says Jesus was tempted, yet without sin. So like an alcoholic might be tempted by alcohol, but if he doesn't drink the alcohol, like in that case, it's easy to see whether he's just being tempted or whether he's actually you know, binging on alcohol. But for some types of sin, the distinction between temptation and sin is like, a lot fuzzier. And so in the case of racism, like that's one case where it's like, where is it temptation? Where is it sin? Where are you crossing the line into like, and and I think like implicit bias, a lot of times people think that that's the sin. Whereas I think that's more like the temptation. Your natural proclivity is going to be that you are tempted to treat black people unequally if you have implicit bias, which I do, which other people, I think the Harvard has shown the vast majority of people who take their test score that they have implicit bias. And so that's like the proclivity that you're going to have. Now that doesn't, like don't get that score back and feel shame at that. The shame comes if you don't do anything to push back against that temptation. Right. The shame comes if you act on just your natural tendency rather than kind of mastering it and choosing to love past that temptation. Right, and love is more than just being nice. I think that's where a lot of white people get it wrong. Love is not civility. Mm. Love is like doing the work to bring the love out of yourself. Like, you know, to, to, to like, it, it, because it's so funny how we put loving your neighbor, like, well, Malcolm X, you know, he was a part of, he was this and that and the other, and what he did, he did not exercise love. Well, white supremacy, again, created Malcolm Malcolm X. It took Malcolm Little, the little boy, and all of these systems of oppression that were imposed on his family, and it created, the, you, the, when his life went into the, the element of crea- criminality, what, what do you think is going to happen? And I think that there's this cycle like that white supremacy plays out in black lives where you know, you you get to a point where you're seeing this system does not benefit you. And so there are some black people that have gone into the criminal system. Some, most, many of them unjustly, you know, I mean, it was complete injustice. And in Malcolm's case, I feel like there was, it, it was injustice. It like pushed, it pushes people up against the wall. In the school, the 
school to prison pipeline, it's a real thing. When you start criminalizing a child and limiting a child and telling a child that they can't do this and they can't do that, and they're seeing you come into their house, they're seeing you kill their father, like what did you think that Malcolm was going to do next? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then so he goes from prison and then he falls into, he goes into the nation of Islam because he wants more for himself. He he wants to reestablish his identity outside of white supremacy. But then even from the nation of Islam to his latter years, it's like, I don't think people understand that there's a cycle that white, like, you know, all of, like black people were on this journey, right? And I can think of like different markers in my life where I, I, like I'm at this space now where I'm undoing the work of white supremacy. But there are times in our life when we buy into white supremacy. There are black people that will uplift whiteness um, to their own like invisibility. There are black people who will fall in line with, okay, well, if this was what you believe in, believe about me, then I have no choice but to become that. There's there's a whole cycle that um, white supremacy plays out in, in, you know, ways that it plays out in our lives. And, you know, it's so easy to, to label, you know, Malcolm X as the, you know, the bad version of Martin Luther King and all of that. But it's, you know, it's more difficult for some reason for people to say, wow, this is what this you know why this is what white supremacy white supremacy produced mm-hmm. yeah let's let's back up a little bit yeah. before the prison because there's a couple other like little stories that I want to tell just because they're kind of fun so one is that Malcolm was um, his like draft number came up so he was going to be drafted and I think this is just kind of a funny episode that shows a little bit of his personality he at that at this point he like was just used to kind of like survival mode on the streets and kind of hustling. And so he goes into the draft and just pretended to be super over eager and excited to get drafted so that he could go kill people. <laughs> and he just like started talking about like, oh, this is going to be so great. I'm going to be like uh, the best. I'm going to kill so many of them. And just like acting all kind of crazy and like like pretended to be kind of like high at, at essentially at the point. Um and super overeager. So they sent him to the army psychiatrist who bought the charade, like, th- like believed him that this was real and like rejected him for, <laughs> for the draft. Um, so I, I think that's a funny episode. Yeah. Um, also, he, uh, he ultimately, the, the thing he went to prison for, and you alluded to this, like some of the injustice of the prison, he ultimately went to prison um, for burglary, um, he and a group of uh, three black people and two white girls were kind of working together um, to like burglarize. Um, the typical sentence for burglary uh, for like is is the first interaction he'd had with like the law. Like he'd done other things like selling marijuana before that, but um, he hadn't gotten caught. So it's his first sentence. And he was given eight to ten years, which is like typically the first sentence for some for a crime like that would be one to two years. Um, but basically, all anyone wanted to talk about, whenever like the judge, the court, the prosecuting and defending attorneys, all anyone wanted to talk about was how these three black men had roped these two white girls into the crime with them. And so he believed, and I think correctly, uh, that like even the defense attorney said, "You guys." You made a foolish mistake when you roped those white girls in. Um, that they were given these like much longer sentences because uh, the the white girls had been with them. Sophia was one of them. Um, 
And so one just kind of funny episode there from Malcolm's autobiography is he talks about how the when they were reading the sentences off, the, there was multiple burglaries that they had been um, linked to. So when they were reading the sentences off, they read one sentence, eight to ten years, one another one, eight to ten years, and they said that the, sen- the sentences would be uh, served concurrently. And Malcolm's uh, buddy, who also was like having the charges read to him at the same time, he didn't know what the word concurrently meant, so he didn't know like the sentences are all served at one time, so it's just eight to ten years. But he thought that the sentences were going to get stacked on one another. So Malcolm talks about how his face went completely flush and he just about passed out thinking <laughs> that he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison. Um, and then Malcolm just kind of chuckled because he knew that the, the sentences were going to be served at the same time. Um, so Malcolm goes to prison then. And actually, in this like... Like this is a whole side conversation we could get off on. Um, Malcolm was transferred pretty early on to a new prison, ex- like experimental prison, that was deliberately trying to be rehabilitative rather than punitive. Um, which I mean, the the prison system in America is almost entirely just punitive. But there's this new prison that they started, and I th- I think his like sister applied for him to get transferred to, um, and he, and he got. Accepted, so he got moved to this other prison where, like, he had his own room and like better facilities, a good prison library, and uh, like it just was a lot less brutal, more like respectable of the prisoners, and um, and then through that experience, like he basically Malcolm had this reinvention in prison where he um, he kind of knew how to read and write, but it was really shaky. The whole time he had been in the hustling life, he had just like not used his brain at all other than to like be in kind of survival mode. Um, and so he basically, literally, he got his hands on a dictionary and he copied down every word of the first page of the dictionary. And through that, like felt this sense of pride and self-worth that like, wow, I can like do this. I like know these words now. And he, so then he continued and the next day he wrote down, copied down the entire second page of the dictionary and just went through and basically wrote down and essentially memorized the dictionary. Um, He said it was like, for him, it was almost like a little mini encyclopedia where he like could learn all these different words and kind of could see how different um, definitions would link to other little parts that he'd already learned. And it started to just like, give him an awareness of the world and reading and writing that he didn't have before. Um, And then he started to read just incessantly. He says that he learned more in prison than he possibly could have learned in college because in prison, there was no distractions. He he literally read 16 hours a day. And he said, "If if I went to college, I probably would have been too distracted by all the other things going on. Would have only read a couple hours a day. So he he thinks he learned a lot more through prison than he, he even could have in college. He like they would turn his lights off at lights out, and there's this little hall light that he could go over and just be able to barely like make out the words on the book, and he continue reading until four in the morning. Yeah, and wow. and so he just like engaged his mind, and he became just kind of brilliant like he had obviously a brilliant mind because early on in elementary school and middle school that was like recognized but he didn't he didn't have the opportunity to do anything with it and then here in prison it was just kind of unleashed and unlocked yeah um and then he converted there to the nation of islam which uh, just to get into that more the nation of islam is not actually recognized by most muslims as being like uh, it's kind of seen the way a lot of Christians would see Mormonism. It's kind of like the separate offshoot that's a fringe, uh, yeah, fringe group. 
But uh, the nation of Islam basically followed the prophet uh, Elijah Muhammad, um, who they kind of, uh, kind of, he had pretty uh, complete control over the yes. nation of Islam and its views. And so they they had like some traditional Muslim beliefs, but like the focus was largely on. Um, white supremacy, the white people uh, as being kind of like we alluded to earlier, uh, white people as devils, black people. And they saw kind of like the story of history in terms of uh, kind of oppression from white people and then black people um, kind of needing to like rise up against that and become free under that yoke. Um, And so Malcolm became like, uh, he converted and then became like a really, he just rose in prominence as a figure yeah. uh, uh, within the nation of Islam uh, to the point that he, over time, even started to kind of eclipse Elijah Muhammad in popularity. Um, and then also, I think there was like some jealousy that he sensed from Elijah Muhammad. Uh, and then also Elijah Muhammad then um, started to get discovered that he had like some just sexual sin, sexual... Um, like he was accused of sexually assaulting teenage girls mm-hmm. um and basically you know abusing his power and authority um and i think at one point of marrying um young girls and malcolm you know he was like just the epitome of a girl dad and he uplifted black women um he's being quoted so many times in pop culture um, talking about how the most disrespected group in America um, and unprotected group in America was a black woman. And he, during his you know time, um, after even during the Nation of Islam, he uplifted black womanhood. And so that was like one of the beginnings of the, um, you know, the cracks uh, that caused his separation with the, the nation mm-hmm. of Islam. Yeah. And then, I mean, here's this is kind of a crazy little side episode just to give you an idea of the kinds of things that Malcolm would say um, that made him unpopular with white people of the day. Um, asked whether a white man had ever done anything good for a black man in America. Malcolm said, yes, I can think of two, Hitler and Stalin. If Hitler hadn't put so much pressure on America, black men could never have gotten decent factory jobs and Stalin kept up the pressure. So just analyzing that for a second, it's pretty easy to see why that would have been taken offensively by some white people. But also, it actually is like historically true. Yeah. That black people were not allowed to work in most factory jobs until like World War II is when a lot of black people were allowed into industry because there was a labor shortage um, and so they then black people were allowed into factory jobs that they had not had access to until then. Like thirty different, thirty of the m- biggest unions didn't allow black members, um, leading leading up to and through World War II. So black people were excluded from all this labor, and it was Hitler that had. And, and, and obviously here, Malcolm is not praising Hitler or Stalin, right. but he's like. Uh, he's speaking dramatically as an indictment against white racism. Exactly, um, and and that's the kind of like, like that's Malcolm did not pull punches. Like he was very like overt. And, like he would just call out racism in very stark terms like this. Um, 
And was was Malcolm violent? Did he like propose violence? Did he want to use violence? No, Malcolm. He like in his autobiography, he talks about his framework, and he talks about how like he thinks violence uh, should like that people should like defend themselves, but that they shouldn't like go and use like perpetrate violence. Right. So he, he he like a lot of the the PR that he got was just like. Uh, a, a misunderstanding, a culpable, deliberate misunderstanding, um, or just propaganda about him on the, the part of white people who tried to make him out to be just like advocating violence. He wasn't advocating violence. He had <clears throat> black men from the Nation of Islam. Uh, at one point, there was this episode where uh, one of the members of the Nation of Islam was brutalized by police, had his head bashed in, and they weren't giving him medical care. And so all these black men from the Nation of Islam, they go and they surround the police precinct. Yep. And they say, we're not going to leave until you transfer him to a hospital and give him medical care. And so white people at that time would look at that and see, here's these armed black men, um, like that's scary and that's violent. In reality, what was Malcolm actually doing there? He was actually trying to force the police who had unjustly brutalized this man to save his life by getting him medical care without which he likely would have died. Right. Like that's not, that's not, it doesn't fit with like the, the white view of like Malcolm as just this like dangerous man. Well, and that narrative is painted again by J. Edgar Hoover and just that whole movement to uh, delegitimize, especially black men mobilizing people, bl- black people in our country um, to action. Mm-hmm. After the JFK assassination, Malcolm X uh, made some insensitive statements. Um, he he said that like he com- talked about like the chickens have come home to roost, saying basically, <coughs> kind of America is reaping what it sowed. Like it, America sowed with all this racism, and now it's like even like the top leader in America has been killed as a result of like this culture of racism that America has established. And it was like insensitive. It's like everyone's grieving JFK's death. Um, And uh, Martin Luther King even kind of spoke against Malcolm X. And then Elijah Muhammad, uh, the kind of the leader of the nation of Islam used, he already was like jealous of Malcolm X. Um, which, sorry, I should have said this earlier, just so you guys know, like the reason why Malcolm X is called Malcolm X rather than Malcolm Little, um, he basically, the, the name Little was a name that he had received from a slave master. It was like a white man's name that had been given to him from like to his Family. enslaved forebears. Yeah. So the, then, so Little was not his ancestral name in Africa and he didn't know what his ancestral name even would have been because it was lost due to enslavement. And so in the Nation of Islam, uh, it wasn't just Malcolm, but other people who like would use an X as like a substitute for that lost name, that lost ancestral name that was like taken and is now unknown to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so just as you hear, even Malcolm X's name was like a reminder of, or like a indictment of like the this uh, stripping of African heritage and culture that that like was taken from him through the process of enslavement. Um, but then, anyways, sorry, that's a, a tangent, but I think it's an important one. Um, so uh, he said that the chickens had come out into roost. Uh, uh, Elijah Muhammad kind of used that as an excuse to. Um, to silence Malcolm. He told him right. for 90 days, you have to like, you can't talk or teach or do any media interviews or anything. Um, and then M- Malcolm sensed that, uh, I don't know if he like 
heard directly or he just kind of sensed that Elijah was basically going to just kind of not just let him back in after nine, yeah. 90 days, that he was going to excommunicate him was, and was even worried about violence because because um, he knew that if, if, if Elijah Muhammad kind of um, spoke against him, he knew that there were men in the nation of Islam that would like be more than happy to like take action to like he was afraid that he would get assassinated. Um, so they, and they were jealous of him anyway. Mm-hmm. So then Elijah, at that point, he actually went on a Hajj, uh, like a kind of he decided that he wanted to go over and kind of experience Islam uh, over in the Middle East and go like do uh, go to Mecca and do the Hajj. So he travels over there, and in the process of that, he converted to Sunni Islam from mm-hmm. the Nation of Islam. Um, and so he kind of joined mainstream Islam. And then uh, there's this kind of like crazy episode through that where at one point he was asked by some of the other Muslims who were just like kind of interviewing him because they knew that he was famous in America. Uh, they asked him what, after he went on the Hajj, they asked him what impressed him the most. And he said, the brotherhood. Yeah. The people of all different nations, skin tones, and languages all coming together as one. That is what stood out most deeply. And then he went on to contrast that with American racism. And for me, as a Christian, that's like such an indictment of Christianity in America because the entire Christian story in the Bible is like this story of God bringing like together every nation, tribe, and tongue under one banner of love under the kingship of Jesus. Like that's what it's supposed to be. Um, like the in in Revelation, like the final scenes in the Bible are of it describes a sea of numberless faces that no one could count, of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Um, and so like the story of Christianity is supposed to be this story of like inclusion and diversity and a celebration of cultures. In Revelation, it talks about the kings of the earth, still like plural different kings and cultures bringing the the good and the fair of their work into the city and enriching it with like these cultural um, diversity. And for for Malcolm X, it's like the very thing that attracted him to Islam is the thing that is supposed to be there in Christianity that he didn't see. Well, and the, I think that's what the, the interesting part is that Malcolm X and his people, black people in America, were oppressed by American Christians. And for him to go to um, Mecca and see this inclusion of fellow Muslims, mm-hmm. um, that some were blue-eyed, blonde-haired. I mean, just they looked... Uh, you know, they were just a span of colors and, you know, and, and to feel that brotherhood under his faith, mm-hmm. is, which is something that Christianity should have exemplified and should have modeled um, for him to be drawn to, you know, Christ, the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. It's just ironic. Mm-hmm. And after that, he stopped saying, he never again after that said that all white people are racist. Up right. until then he had, but when he went over there, he saw white people who he believed were genuinely like could see him and cared about him and loved him. And I mean, again, I think that's just like an indictment of white evangelicalism in America that like he had to go on the Hajj pilgrimage before he could see examples of white people who are genuinely loving. And after that, in media interviews and everything, he said, no, not all white people are racist. And he even applied that to America and said like, not all white people are racist here. Like I, I see some of you trying to like, make a difference, but he said, I, I, I barely see it in America. 
And that's where he becomes the most dangerous. And this is where he was gunned down, um, is because he got a different worldview outside of America. Um, and I think that's where he became the most dangerous. I think it, it would be it would benefit the, the the listeners to read the autobiography of Malcolm X, uh, which was written by um, Alex Haley, um, and then watch the movie, the film by Spike Lee, um, and then also the documentary that's on Netflix that talks about well, it's it's who killed Malcolm X. It's an inter- his story is like two big to put into such a short episode um, of our podcast, but he has an amazing story. So I, I definitely encourage you guys to go and check out those three, the book, the the film by Spike Lee, and then the documentary about who killed him. Mm-hmm. Time Magazine named his autobiography one of the 10 most influential nonfiction books of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that alone, like... That's, I mean, top 10 books of an entire century. That's like something that you should read and check out. And I think it's a great um, document of just that cycle of white supremacy and how it plays out in black lives and how we go on this journey. Um, I think Malcolm's journey looks very much like the journey of many black people who are coming from under the weight of white supremacy and how they bought into it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then... Malcolm's enduring legacy, like he he was a figure that um, kind of like, I mean, we a couple weeks ago talked about the Black Panther movement, and it, like that happened shortly after Malcolm um, and and his assassination. But um, some of what happened with the Black Panther movement drew inspiration from Malcolm. Um, he was kind of like a an even earlier kind of instance of a black man standing up against the injustice of the system and in the injustice of Jim Crow and of like white supremacy and um, the American story to that point and, and stood up against it with a kind of a pride, a confidence. Um, and that inspired so much of what came after him and, um, he put words to the frustration of the black community. Um, he kind of uh, inspired uh, the like the Black Panther movement, how the way that they um, used like armed patrols of the police, even kind of drew inspiration of Malcolm's tactics um, and the kinds of uh, ways that he would use force, but kind of defensively rather than um, attacking. Um, and then, yeah, Time Magazine and others kind of uh, heralded his influence, uh, the Black Power Movement, the Black Arts Movement, and the wide, uh, widespread adoption of the slogan, Black is Beautiful, mm-hmm. are, uh, all give Malcolm X kind of credit for uh, their inspiration for kind of getting those movements started. So he was a figure who, who unfortunately, because he was assassinated, he, his time was uh, cut short, but he definitely had a, a huge impact on the what came after him, uh, both the, the civil rights, Black Panther, and uh, kind of the shift away from de facto and de jure segregation. And his legacy is um, just as important as Martin Luther King's. I mean, his legacy is wh- what many Black people are experiencing now, just our right to exist and to resist in ways that are that don't have to be palatable, palatable to white people because. White people hated Martin Luther King and Malcolm X equally during their time. So it's like, we don't need your permission. 
and how we uh, cry out against oppression, like Colin, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. Like, you don't get to tell us how to respond to your racism and the systems of oppression. We, we will, some of us will speak louder than others. Some, some of us will be more assertive than others. Some of us will, you know, fall under certain convictions. And all of it is necessary because, again, you know, people will say, oh, Martin Luther King is rolling in his grave. Well, white supremacy put him in his grave. So, and, and again, he was hated just as much as Malcolm at that time, but now they want to make these distinctions and have this revisionist history. Mm-hmm. And you don't get to do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Martin Luther King, I mean, this is a whole separate episode that we'll have to do sometime. But yeah, when he, he, when he was killed, he was like a very unpopular figure among white people. But then the, like, the government deliberately tried to make him a martyr representing nonviolence because they wanted to like they wanted black people not to be violent. So they like set him up as like he's like this be heroic like figure. Martin. Be like Martin, don't be violent. Um but it was like he was kind of set up as a like a propaganda figure. But but like before his death, he was moving beyond um like the the main kind of chapter of the civil rights movement had kind of been successful and he was starting to move into like other ways of demanding uh, like that the government do right by the black community that, that I mean he was not yeah. popular. And the very brief interaction between Martin and Malcolm and as well as Martin's wife Coretta Scott King, like you guys really need to check out and read more read read um, about their interactions and their different ideals and um, ide- I, their different philosophies um in how to handle oppression or how to resist oppression as a people. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics and see some behind-the-scenes videos, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. Remember that all of the money that you give in the next nine episodes will all go to The Witness. This is our last episode of the year, so we just want to thank you for listening and for those that have supported us. Thank you so much. And we'll leave you with this quote from Malcolm X. Don't be in a hurry to condemn because he doesn't do what you do or think as you think or as fast. There was a time when you didn't know what you know today.